Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings you, you pour out on us, Father, the many ways you show up and do hard work and, and surprise us, Father, with the many ways you can call into service people we'd never expect and situations we never imagined. And you are doing this constantly, Father. You're always at work. We know that. We're grateful that you honor us with the opportunity to work side by side with you. And yet, Father, even in that partnership, it's all your work. It's all your strength. And, Father, the best we can hope to do is to listen and obey with hearts that seek you earnestly. Your word, Father, is that lamp, that, that message to our heart that explains who you are, how we can contribute in our, our obedience, and, and how we are to be holy like you are. And we, we look today, Father, into the word for those things, for things, Father, that uh, you would have for us, answers to questions we may not have even asked yet, Father. Show us your truth. And cause this Father to act accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we are still in the midst of the call of Moses. Open your Bibles to chapter 2 of Exodus. Chapter 2, we're going to pick up about verse 23. That's where we left off. Moses has departed Egypt. He's settled in Midian. He's found a wife, Zipporah. He now has a son, Gershom. And at this point in the story... Fast forward 40 years, Moses has established a new life in Midian. For all intents and purposes, this is home. And from Moses' point of view, this is all that home will ever be. While he is in this place, God is going to interrupt that plan and change his course of life. Now, back in Egypt, before he left, he knew that God had put on his life a mark or a call to do something for God, and particularly to help free the Israelites out of bondage. Moses, though took that understanding at whatever level that he had, and he acted prematurely on it. The last time we met in chapter 2, we see him strike the Egyptian taskmaster. Then when he returned the next day, he expected the nation of Israel to embrace him as their leader. But, of course, they saw no reason to rally behind him, and that caused him to have to flee. Now, at this point in chapter 2, God is ready for Moses to free Israel from Egypt and to bring them to the promised land that God spoke to Abraham. So in verse 23, we pick up. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. After 40 years, the Pharaoh dies, we're told. That's in verse 23. Now, back to your charts. The Pharaoh that's dying there is the Third. This is the one who had tried to kill Moses after the death of Hapshetzet. And not only Moses, but anyone who was connected to her was a target. But with his passing, with the Third's passing, his son, Amenhotep II, now rises to power rises to the throne in Egypt. That came in 1447 B.C. And we're told at about that time, the Lord hears the groanings of the people of Israel. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Now, whenever you see in the Bible a description of God using human characteristics to represent his actions or his thoughts, what you are seeing is something we call an anthropomorphism. In this case, God is described as hearing And remembering. Now, those are human traits. God, on the other hand, is all spirit, according to Scripture. He doesn't hear with ears. He doesn't forget 
lest he need to remember. All things are continually before God and his attention. His knowledge has no limits. His mind never forgets. So these statements about him, it's self-evident in the text that they are saying something about God, but they are not a literal description of God. When the scriptures then describe God with anthropomorphisms, you have to look deeper at the meaning given the context. In this case, when it says God hears, it means God is inclined toward their pleas or he is inclined toward their requests. And likewise, when it says he remembers, it means the time for God to act now has come to pass. So putting them together, it's saying God is now inclined to act on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now is the time. After all that has come and gone, all the time that has passed, now is the moment for God to take action in keeping with the promises that he gave to the patriarchs that he would one day free Israel and bring them back into the land. It's been two years since Tutmose III died. Therefore, it's been two years since Amenhotep II has taken the throne. So it is now 1445. Moses spends his days shepherding Jethro's flocks and his own flocks and whatever else you do in Midian. Until one day, chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire. Yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. All right, Moses is near Horeb. Remember, I mentioned last week in your map, if you still have the copy I handed out last week, or any map in your Bible for that matter, you should notice Midian is roughly directly south of Canaan, directly south of modern-day Jerusalem, just on the eastern side of the Sea of Aqua, and it is in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Midian is in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Moses is in this region, and... This region is incredibly hot all the time and incredibly dry. It has virtually no rain. It's a surprising thing for it to rain any time of year. And under those circumstances, it's not uncommon for the small shrubs that manage to survive in this place to literally spontaneously combust. That is not altogether unheard of. From the combination of dryness and heat, you can reach the point where they may burst into flame. What's different, though, of course, is once they burst into flame, they don't stay unconsumed. And that's what you should notice in the text. Moses doesn't say, I need to see why this bush is burning. Moses says, I need to find out why this bush that's burning isn't being consumed. It's not unusual to see burning. It's just unusual to see a bush that doesn't get consumed. So he goes to investigate. The burning bush is a theophany. Theophany. A theophany is any physical manifestation of God. Specifically, it is a display of the Shekinah glory of God. And the Shekinah glory refers to a manifestation of God's glory that's usually in the form of fire or smoke or cloud or some combination of those three things. Here you see fire, obviously. So it's God's glory specifically being represented in a physical form, something I can hear or see or smell or touch. But God himself is all spirit. God himself has no such form. So this is not God. This is a representation of God, a theophany. We're told in the text that the angel of the Lord appears in this theophany. Now, the angel of the Lord, that phrase, that title, 
occurs over 50 times in the Old Testament. And these appearances, wherever they appear in the Old Testament, are always appearances of the second person of the Godhead, that being Christ, that being Jesus, though a pre-incarnate Jesus. So we really are not correct to say it's Jesus, because Jesus is a man who was born in a city on a day in history. That man does not exist at this point in history. The second person of the Godhead most certainly does exist. He has always existed. But as the form Jesus, it's a later form that we finally get when he is born of the Virgin Mary. Before that, though, the second person of the Godhead appears as the angel of the Lord in theophanies, in physical representations of God. Because prior to being incarnate, being born of flesh, Jesus himself had no physical form. Here you see the second person of the Godhead taking a theophanotic form, a form that is made to be representative or manifest to us, but it is not his true form, because his true form is spirit at this point. You can clearly see the truth of this in the context, because in this same context, this, quote, angel is called God in the same context. Notice in the very next verse, the person speaking from the bush is referred to as God in this context. That happens in every context where you see the angel of the Lord mentioned. The angel of the Lord is also synonymous with the term God itself, Lord. In fact, the only member of the Godhead who is ever made visible to the creation is the second person, both in his pre-incarnate theophanies and later in his incarnate body as Jesus from Nazareth. Hebrews tells us this, Hebrews 1.3. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews says, And he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Listen to that description. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. It's describing the light beams that travel from a light object. Think of the light beams that reach the earth. When you see the sun in the sky, are you seeing the sun? To be technically correct, you're not. You're seeing the light beams that have come from the sun to the earth. That's all you can see. That's how light works. But the object itself sits a distance from us and is literally unseeable by us, except that the light it emits reaches us. The Father is all spirit and cannot be seen by the analogy that this writer is using. Jesus is like the light beams from the Father. The thing we can see, touch, or hear is Christ. The Word we can hear, the, the incarnate body of, of Jesus was seen and will be seen again. And in these early times was seen as a theophany. Colossians, Paul echoes this in Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Later in Colossians 1.19, Paul goes on, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. So the fullness, the perfected, visible nature of God is dwelling in the man, Jesus, who is God. So Jesus is the only member of the Godhead who's ever been made visible to us in the creation. All creation was made through him, by him, and for him. So he is the side of God that takes physical form or expresses God's character in a physical way. The rest of God is unknowable, literally, apart from what God is willing to reveal to us through that creative part of the Godhead. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 9, Have I been so long with you and yet 
You have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Literally, that's the way you see the Father is through Christ. So, in this time of Moses, Jesus has yet to take human form. So, any physical manifestation of Christ has to take some other form. He can't be a man Jesus until he's born. So this is in some other form. It's the form of this burning bush. He's later going to be a pillar of fire in the desert in front of the Jews as they wander through the desert or a fire and cloud. Other times, by the way, the angel of the Lord is mentioned without any form. We don't know what the form is. It's not even given to us. We just know that the writer of some book of scripture will say the angel of the Lord appeared. So we're not always sure what the form is. But the form usually has some meaning associated with the situation. Like in this case, a bush that burns but is not consumed. Historically, that's always been taken as a metaphor for Israel in their current circumstances. They are in torment of bondage, but that torment has not consumed them and destroyed them. In fact, Israel has historically seen this themselves so much so that you will often see a symbol of Israel depicted as a burning bush. They use that very symbol in some of their own historic representations of the nation because they see that as a symbol of themselves what's the pillar of fire when they're in the desert it's the light that guided them and the barrier from the forces that tried to defeat them right god had always taking a form that had some meaning now moses's encounter with christ in this form of a burning bush is iconic everyone knows this moment in fact we often talk about this concerning ourselves we say wouldn't god give me a burning bush please i really wish i had a burning bush so i know what to do And I think a lot of Christians wonder, why did Moses receive something so clear and direct from the Lord while we, meanwhile, struggle to understand what God would have us know or have us do? We beg God, just give me that burning bush. We gave it to Moses. Why can't you give it to me? Well, the desire to hear clearly from God is understandable. The request itself, though, suggests that our imperfect obedience is a consequence of poor hearing. When in reality, it's usually a consequence of poor listening. In reality, our true challenge is to listen to what the Lord has already said and is saying so that we may obey. Because we've already received something greater than the burning bush, we should not expect the burning bush. What was the burning bush? Literally, it was a word from Christ. Have you not received a word from Christ? He is the word, literally. Have we understood and obeyed everything that's in here. When you're done with this, then you get the burning bush. I wonder if we were to actually understand and follow everything that's written in this, how many of our daily life's problems would go away? And that's usually the issue, right? We have some immediate concern in our life. We go to the Lord for that request of what do I do about this? I wonder how often we ask that while he sits up there saying, I gave you so much. Is this not enough? Furthermore, he came in the flesh. He was incarnate. And in that life he lived before he died, he modeled what it means to be holy. He modeled what it means to be obedient to the Father. And that model was recorded in the Gospels. Are we emulating that standard yet? And most importantly, he gave us something that heretofore had never been given to those who followed the Lord. And that was the spirit living in us, the literal spirit of Christ in us, a blessing that even the Old Testament saints didn't know. Hebrews 1, going back there again, says this, Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
When Moses lived and walked and stood in front of that burning bush, there was no recorded scripture on earth whatsoever. There was no scripture. The revelation that men got in that age was entirely dependent on God appearing to men in these fashions and intervening in their lives with some specific revelation. That's all men had. Can you imagine walking your entire life as a believer with no scripture to turn to on a daily basis? Nothing written concerning God. In fact, this appearance in the story we're reading before Moses is the first known revelation from God to anyone on earth for over 200 years. So whole generations lived and died and never heard a thing from God. No revelation came to them. What if the only word we had from God came sporadically and to other men, not to us, and separated by decades or maybe centuries? So when it comes to knowing and understanding God's will for our lives, who has it easier, Moses or us? He got a bush burning in the desert. Good for him. I've got the entire word of God before me every day, including that story. Who has the greater opportunity to know and follow God's will? So when we look past what we've already been given at times and demand a theophany to be literal, a direct revelation, what we're really asking God to do is give us a step backward. In a sense, we're trading the full revelation of Christ in the word and in the spirit who dwells in us for some momentary specific experience like the one Moses had. I don't want to make that trade. I don't think anybody in here would want to make that trade. Furthermore, if Christ can speak clearly to Moses through a burning bush, can we not expect him to speak clearly to us through the spirit that he's placed in us? And if a few words in the desert can change the course of Moses' life, how much more could the words of this book change our life? What we have far exceeds what Moses had. We really don't need to ask for more. What we need to do is take advantage of what we have and be receptive and listen. So let's look at what happens with Moses and listen to what he hears from the bush. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord begins this conversation, and he begins it by calling Moses' name repeatedly, twice to be specific. Another pattern you can note in Scripture Whenever God calls a man in this way, two times repeating his name, it signals a commission, a calling specifically from the Lord to this man to go do something. This pattern happened with Abraham. It happens with Jacob. It happens again in the future with Samuel. You'll see this in different places along the way. So here the Lord is calling Moses to his mission. Now, this is the mission Moses thought he had, remember? And then at some point decided he didn't have. And now, 40 years later, it's time. He responds by coming toward the bush. Only God says, don't come any nearer. You're on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And then he identifies himself as the God of his patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of this is to signify you are in the presence of God. That would have been appropriate for men who, up till now, as far as we can tell, had had no such experience, no such revelation. And as I said, for 200 years, no one in his family had either. He hides his face. He's even afraid to look at a burning bush. I love these moments because they just reset our expectations a little. This is a theophany, right? This is not God. This is not God. This is something that is meant to represent God because there's no other way for God to be represented to a sinful man. But even with just a theophany, the fear of God is so palpable that there's this instinctive response of fear on the part of men. And you see this, of course, all the way through the Old Testament 
So if Moses responds this way to a theophany, which is only a representation of God, how do you think we're going to feel when we stand in the presence of God? I think that's what the writer of Hebrews means when he says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's just no way to understand that. And terror, terror does not imply that you're under any threat, but it's the natural reaction of sinful flesh in the face of a, of a holy God. So now, the specific calling, verse 7. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. And furthermore, I have seen the oppression from which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So God lays it out for Moses. Here's why I'm calling you. I'm ready to respond to the affliction. I'm going to deliver my nation. Notice what God does, though. All the pronouns throughout. God says, I will deliver the nation. They are my people. I have heard. I have come down to deliver them. He doesn't say, Moses, I want you to go deliver my people. He says, I will deliver them. But what he's doing is he's inviting Moses to join him in the work. After they leave the land of Egypt, God says, I'm going to deliver them to Canaan. And he describes Canaan as a land that is flowing in milk and honey. It's a phrase that indicates prosperity in this sense, the colloquialism, actually. If the land is literally flowing with milk, then it must mean that it has many, many cattle or many, many goats to produce all of that flowing milk. And if the land could support that many livestock, then obviously the land has a lot of grass, a lot of pasture land. In other words, it's a measure of how much the land can support that many animals to produce that much milk. Likewise, if the land is flowing with honey, it must mean there are countless number of bees. And if there are so many bees, that's only possible if the land is covered with flowering, blossoming plants that produce the nectar for all of that honey. So it means it's a land of plentiful harvest. So these two phrases, milk and honey, refer to animals and farming. Notice the land they receive is currently held by all those ites. I had a pastor one time used to run through that list, and if you weren't listening carefully, he'd sneak in menentites. And you'd have to... You'd have to be, whoa, I think I heard that. Remember, these are the people God told Abraham back in Genesis 15 that would be displaced, judged for their iniquity. But not yet. They had to wait until an appointed time. Now God is ready for that time. But there are many other ites in this land. There's only six listed here. This is another interesting pattern of Scripture. There are various points in Scripture when the ites of Canaan are listed. And the numbers are always different. When God told it to Abraham in Genesis 15, he only used one. The Amorites, who were then representative of all the Canaanites. Well, here it's six. Those numbers have meaning. In the case of one, one is the number of sovereignty, of God acting in sovereign power. When he's saying what he's saying to Abraham, it's nothing but a display of sovereignty. You will have this happen to you, and then this happen to you, and I will do this, but then this will happen, and then I will bring you back in this land, and it's after 400 years, and that's sovereignty. Now it's six. Six is the number of sinful man. So he's emphasizing their iniquity now has reached the point where it is time for me to take them out of the land, as he has promised. So it's a representation of their sin. Further evidence that God is fulfilling the words he gave to Abraham in his covenant. Then lastly, as I said, God invites Moses to join the work. He says, I want to send you to Pharaoh. 
You'll bring my people out of Egypt. Now, I can only imagine a little of what must have been running through Moses' mind. Not only just the terror and the whole shock of seeing a theophany, but now the message. I'm here, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got a job, I've got my lifestyle, I've got this family, I don't want to go anywhere, I hadn't planned on going anywhere. Now all of a sudden I've got to go somewhere and it's, it's not just anywhere, I've got to go back to Egypt and I've got to talk to the Pharaoh and that won't go well. It's all come into his mind. So he asks two questions and he raises three objections. Two questions, three objections. Let's look first at the two questions beginning in Exodus 3:11. But Moses said to God, anytime you see the word but after God gives you a call, there's bad things happening. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, or he said, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So that's his first question. It may sound like an objection, but it's just him asking what is probably an obvious first question. Having heard what God just said, Moses says, who am I to do this? Meaning, how can I expect to be successful in this kind of a task? Wouldn't we all ask that? I mean, put it in some contemporary context and see what you think. Uh, God appears to you and says you're going to go to some foreign leader and demand that they change some huge policy. Wouldn't you first think, well, who am I to go do that? Wouldn't you want to send like the secretary of state? Why me? The implication is Pharaoh is so strong and so powerful and I'm so not that it makes no sense. God answers the question by assuring Moses that God is not asking Moses to go alone, nor is he asking Moses to do this in his own power. Furthermore, God gives Moses a sign that will prove to him that he has heard all of this from the true living God. When they leave Egypt, he will find himself at this very same mountain. And when he does, he will find himself worshiping God. And of course, that refers to what Moses was eventually shown on the mountain, the face of God and all of that. That will be a, a proof for, God, for Moses later to rest in, to know all of this has happened truly because God has sent me. So his response to the question is, don't worry, you're not doing this on your own. It's not you who's doing this, it's me. Then verse 13, Moses asked the second question. Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. This second question is such a fascinating question. Moses says, What do I do if they ask me who you are? And I don't know that we would have naturally assumed that question, but it shows you how much different our thinking is with all that we know with all that we have in Scripture, but you have to go back to the Moses of that day to really appreciate why this would have been a question that's top of mind. There's been no revelation of God for 200 years. There's no first-hand knowledge of God in his lifetime. He's coming at this from a blank sheet except for the history, the verbal history that's been passed down concerning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which is not insignificant, mind you. But at some point, doesn't that start to be history rather than personal experience? That's what Moses recognizes here. Remember, Israel's been in bondage for these many years. They've not heard from God themselves. They must have their own doubts about God at this point, 
given their circumstances. And they're in a culture in which everyone in that culture worships countless number of pagan gods. So the natural thing for Moses to assume is he shows up with yet another God who wants to free them. And they're going to ask the obvious question, which God is this? Who is this God? In response, God gives another of those iconic responses in Scripture. He gives his own name. The name of God is I am who I am. Literally in Hebrew, God's name would be translated this way. One who causes all to be or the one who is. Either one of those could be done out of the words in Hebrew. The word for I am in Hebrew is Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, H-A-Y-A-H. It's the active form of the verb to be in Hebrew. What I mean by active is it means to exist, but in an active sense in Hebrew. So it's to exist in action. What it suggests is God is calling himself the real God who proves his existence by his works. He proves that he is by what he does, as opposed to false gods who are silent and still and do nothing. Now, the Jews have taken this name of God, Hayah, and have taken vowels out and moved some letters around. It became Y-H-W-H, which we sometimes pronounce Yahweh. They do that to avoid saying the name out of respect for the name. But everywhere in your English Bibles where you see the English word Lord, often in all caps, that word is actually a substitute for Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H. They're referring back to this moment, to this name. So when you see Lord in your Bible in English, it's the representation in English of I am or Hayah. Notice at the end of verse 14, God repeats his name here. I am has sent you. And you know what the Hebrew word is behind I am? Hayah again. So it's Hayah has sent you. But knowing God's name here doesn't really get to the true essence of Moses' question concerning what he thinks his countrymen will ask him. They don't just want to know some name. They want to know the identity of this God and their relationship to this God. Who is he to me? And to that, God gives Moses the real sense of the answer, the real form of the answer. He says, I am the God of their fathers. I am that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You notice that as God in the Old Testament wants to identify himself forcefully, he always returns to that, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he's saying by that is, I am the God of that promise, because it's that promise that created them as a people. So I am the God who made you who you are. I am that God. And that God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Having answered Moses' two questions, now God is going to give Moses a detailed explanation about what comes next in the plan. So between the two questions and the three objections, God lays out more detail. And it makes, I think, better sense for why the objections come when they do, because it's these additional details that make Moses so uncomfortable. Verse 16, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses is told God's assurance that he hears and he's responding to their concerns or their needs, and secondly, he will deliver them. And then God begins to tell Moses, here's what will happen when you go do these things. First, the people of Israel will pay heed to your words, and the elders of Israel will even join you in going before Pharaoh and making this request. Okay, well, that's good. The first thing you're going to ask of Pharaoh is, you're going to ask for Israel to go three days' journey into the desert to sacrifice and to worship to the Lord. Does does that sound like a strange request? Isn't Moses supposed to lead Israel out of Egypt permanently? Well, actually, that's what God is saying here. A three-day journey from Pharaoh would have put them on the border of Egypt and Canaan. So it's just an artful way of saying, let us go. Let us travel three days away, which is a way of saying, let us go and never come back. And then we will worship this God. This request is perceived by Pharaoh as, oh, you want to leave your bondage. That will never happen. So to this request, here's where it gets tough. God tells Moses, yeah, Pharaoh's going to say no. And he's going to keep saying no until he's forced. But I'm prepared to force him. And I'm going to send, I love this phrase, all my miracles. All my miracles. When we get to looking at these later in this study, we'll take time at points along the way to compare them to what we see going on in tribulation. And for those of you who did the Revelation study, you'll have some memory of that, I'm sure, in which many of these parallel what God does later to the whole world in tribulation. Well, we know that those those terrible judgments of tribulation, I'm thinking specifically of the bowl judgments, which mirror these, uh, are the final wrath of God, we're told. The full measure of God's wrath on earth. The wrath of God is finished with those bold judgments. It's as if that's all God has. And here you see him referring to the lesser form of those judgments, the, the picture of those greater judgments, as all my miracles, reinforcing the concept that this is the full judgment of God against Pharaoh, as it will one day be the full judgment of God against the earth. He says, I'm going to cause Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, this is a really interesting technique to gain the desired outcome. What is the outcome? Israel free. Consider all the ways God could have accomplished this. I mean, he could have simply killed all the Egyptians. He did that for the Assyrians when they camped outside Hezekiah. You know, the angel of the Lord shows up the next morning and they're all dead. Seems like a faster way to go about this. And it's clear then from the fact that he does this through ten miracles, it takes a while, it has all the back and forth with, with Moses going before Pharaoh and so on, which we obviously are going to get to. It's clear there's got to be something else going on with all of this. There's more to the the point than simply getting them out. God's method is designed to create pictures, to demonstrate power, to lead to prophetic patterns. In other words, the manner itself has a bunch of teaching embedded in it that made that manner necessary for us and for the world and for the story of Scripture. So that's what we'll be pulling out as we go through it. It's not just to get Israel out of Egypt. There's easier ways to do it if that was all he was after. Lastly, God promises to Moses that his people, when they leave Egypt, will come out with many possessions. That's in keeping with the promise he gave Abraham back in Genesis 15. He told Abraham then that they would leave with many possessions. Here you see it being foretold again. Women in Israel are simply going to ask their Egyptian neighbors, can I have all your gold and silver? 
and they're just going to give them what they have. The only way to explain that, of course, is by the time they reach that point, they are so fearful of the God of Israel, so happy to see the Jews leave, that they'll do anything they can to get rid of what's happening around them. So well, that's not evident to Moses at this point, but he must have been scratching his head trying to figure out how are you going to do that? By the way, once that happens, God has repaid Israel for their years of slavery. They'll, they will be paid handsomely for all of that labor. So while in the midst of it all, their mindset is, why is God doing this to us? And we've already studied the, the reasons why God set that up. But at the end of it all, God recompenses them for all of that. So they leave whole even in the sense of their labor. Now, Moses, once he hears this plan, his whole attitude seems to change. While at first he's just inquisitive, asking the, net, the obvious questions, now he's downright worried and he begins to object to the plan. He has three objections. These objections are markedly contrasted with the earlier Moses, who was all but ready to just rush in and save the Jews, wasn't he? Forty years earlier. In fact, in the story of Exodus, there are three distinct periods or phases to Moses' own life. And interestingly, all three of these phases last exactly 40 years. The first 40 is Moses growing up in Egypt. You could describe Moses as young and confident, a bit presumptuous, running ahead of God. And as a result, he faced disappointment and then he retreats all the way to Midian. The second 40 years is Moses in Midian. He's older. You could say he's resigned to his circumstances. He's clearly going to have some self-doubts. You're going to see that here in a minute. And above all, he's reluctant to accept God's call. You could describe him as falling behind God now. And as a result, he's going to have to witness God's power and God's glory. He's going to have to receive God's instruction. And in the process, what he's going to learn is God can do great things with humble servants. But he demands obedience. He demands holiness. He demands response. Then the last 40 years is Moses wandering in the desert with the rest of the, the Israelites. In that period of his life, he's seasoned, he's mature, he's wise, he's steady. He's walking not ahead, not behind, but side by side with God in that last phase of his life. He's going to have a lot of trials, but in the face of those trials, he leads God's people with diligence, with persistence, and through a lot of challenges, learning all the time God is holy, God is good, God is just. You could ask for nothing better in your own life, if you ask me. To end your life that way, to have seen all sides of God and to be brought to that degree of maturity would be wonderful. All right, so now we're looking at that second 40 years, though, that reluctant, self-doubting Moses. So chapter 4 is Moses raising three objections to the way he serves God. And we won't finish the chapter today. We don't need to, but we'll go through the first two-thirds of it or so to get through these objections. Let's read the first one is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand back into your bosom again. 
So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses' first objection is, what if they don't believe me? Now, notice something interesting at this point. God has told Moses that he will be sent to Egypt to free his people from Pharaoh's grip. And God has said, Pharaoh won't listen. So God is prepared to bring miracles against the king to compel him to listen. So in light of that, wouldn't Moses' first concern be, well, maybe Pharaoh won't listen to me? Wouldn't that be your first thought? Pharaoh's not going to respond to my comments. No, the first thing he thought is, the Jewish people themselves won't even listen to me. Well, of course, that's built on his past experience. The last time he tried to do this, they didn't listen to him. His doubts, I have to believe, are shared by a whole lot of other people who have had to step out in leadership at some point in time. I've often heard it said ministry would be a lot easier if it weren't for all the people. (laughs) Because people don't want to be led. We don't want to be led, especially if that leadership needs to correct, admonish, or challenge us. Then we really don't want leadership. In Moses' case, the people were going to be called to leave everything they knew, enter a strange and uncertain world under the threat of the Pharaoh. And if you know anything about how this story goes, you know that they quickly wish they were back in Egypt, right? So they were not easy people to lead. The fact remains, though, God calls men to lead his people then and now. And that's what God has always done. Paul says in Ephesians 4:11 and 12, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. These leadership positions, those and others like them, they're intended by God to bring good things to the people, to build them up, it says, to give them an advantage so that they can work in service to the body. That's why I think Hebrews says in 13, 17, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who would give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I I love the way Hebrews brings it back to us. He says, don't think of it simply for what's good for them. It's not good for you to make the job of the leadership harder because God put them there for you. And not that they're perfect because of that. Moses wasn't perfect. But when someone receives a call like Moses did here, their first thought may be, well, God, who's ever going to follow me? Who's ever going to see me as a leader who can help them? Do you know what the answer to that question really is? No one. No one's going to receive you. No one. And in fact, no one should receive you or me. Look how God answered Moses when he asked the question. God didn't say, oh, come on now, Moses. Why wouldn't they accept you? You look just like Charlton Heston. (laughs) You've been trained in the Pharaoh's courts. You went to the best seminary. You had the best professors. You've written all those great books. Of course the people are going to receive you. No, what God said was, I will validate your ministry. Notice in verse 2, God says to Moses, you can use your staff to perform a miraculous sign. In verse 6, he says, you can use your own hand to prove that I am working in you. In verse 9, God tells Moses, you'll be able to turn the Nile into blood. By those three miracles, God is promising to Moses, I can validate your ministry before yourself, before you, before your people, and before Pharaoh. I can prove it to you, I can prove it to them, I can prove it to Pharaoh. 
And those three signs, among other things God does, bolsters Moses' own confidence, it gains the trust of the Israelites, and it demands the respect of Pharaoh. And I think, by extension, we, like Moses, should have the confidence that if we're going to go serve in ministry, if we have a true calling to go in some form, and particularly if it's in a leadership form, you can expect God is going to fully validate that ministry in your life and in the lives of the people you influence. But if you go with the attitude that I have to prove it in my own power, well, yeah, you're not going to be received. You shouldn't be received. We don't want people like that leading. And we don't want people following people like that. The key is to keep a humble view of self without losing confidence in the power of God. There's a great quote by a man named Frederick Meyer. Cherish the lowliest thought you choose of yourself, but... Unite it with the loftiest conception of God's all-sufficiency. Self-deprecation may lead to the marring of a useful life. We must think soberly of ourselves, but not too lowly as not too extravagantly. The one talent we have must not be buried in the earth. We have to recognize that when God is called, then he'll equip. And that equipping is going to suffice for the work. And God can validate our ministry in the face of any doubts. I love the way the prophet Amos responded. He was a sheep herder. Okay, this guy had no training in religion. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a priest. He was just a lowly sheep herder, which was a low class in the society. And God sends him from the southern kingdom to the evil king of the northern kingdom, to his enemies. And when he reaches there, of course, what do they say to him? You're nobody. Who are you to come talk to the king? Here's what he says. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I'm a herdsman. I'm a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from the following flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So humble, insignificant, yes, but God told me. So here I am. And here's what God says. So that's Moses' first objection. They won't receive me. And God's response is, you're right, but they'll receive me. Then Moses raises a second objection. Verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, uh, who made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go and I, even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Moses says the people aren't going to receive me. Now he turns to saying, well, I'm not going to be a particularly good messenger. I'm not really cut out for this kind of work. You need to find someone who has the natural ability to carry this off. He's referring here to his lack of strength or skill in speech. And so he tells God, if God needs someone to speak eloquently, he should look for someone else. Moses describes himself here as slow of speech, slow of tongue. Actually, he says, literally, I am not a man of speech. I have a heavy mouth. Have you ever heard it taught that Moses may have stuttered or he had some kind of speech impediment. That may have been true, but this phrase more accurately describes someone who isn't good at speaking on their feet. That would be more the sense of it in Hebrew, as I understand. So it's someone who can't form thoughts, who can't work quickly in a situation to say what they mean. That's what he means by heavy of mouth, can't get the words out. It's not that he says, I have a birth defect, I can't do this job. He's saying, I just don't think I speak very well. It's just as likely, in fact, it's even more likely that Moses was simply expressing the fear that we all have of having to speak in such a dramatic way. In other words, Moses is just like you and me. If we don't 
feel confident speaking boldly in these kinds of circumstances, we're going to say, hey, you know, I can't do this. Similar to what I mentioned earlier. What if the president of the U.S. called you and asked you to lead a delegation negotiating a difficult treaty with Iran? First thought is, well, who am I to do that? Your second thought would be, I'm not very good speaking like that. You'd have some doubts, right? You'd ask, am I eloquent enough? Can I speak fast enough, think fast enough? And that's what Moses says here. Once again, Moses is exactly right. His tongue isn't good enough. And no, he's not smart enough. He does not have the ability to convince Pharaoh to free the nation of Israel. But God does. Look at his response in verses 11 and 12. He says, I can make your abilities equal to the task I have given you. Because after all, I made your mouth. Who gives man the power to hear or see, for that matter, to do anything? It's the Lord, right? It's like a marionette. As a marionette looks up the strings at whatever hand is above them and says to them, you know what, I don't have the strength to lift my feet. And the person holding the strings will look down and say, well, no kidding, but I do. What's the problem? That's Moses to God. I don't have the mouth to talk. God said, well, I've got your mouth. I made it. I'll make it say whatever I want it to say. That's not a problem for me. Our ability to do anything of value is always dependent on him working through us. Not only when we speak to kings, but when we speak quietly to a friend who's hurting. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter the ability. In fact, if we think ourselves accomplished in some natural way, it's probably less likely that God would use us to his glory because Scripture says he uses the weak things so that he can be seen as strong. If he uses the strong things in every case, it's still him. But we may be confused by that and not give him the right glory. Proverbs 16:9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So that's Moses' second objection. I don't have the skill. God says, I know, I do. And then verse 13, the third objection, he says, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Now, this objection can be hard to interpret, Most English translations in verse 13 show Moses as asking God to send someone else. Could you please send someone else? That's a reasonable interpretation of the Hebrew. It fits the context okay. In other words, it would make sense then for why God gets mad in response to that. But the literal Hebrew simply says, Lord, send by the hand you send. That's all it says in Hebrew. Lord, send by the hand you send. Some have interpreted this to mean Won't you send someone beside me? Or, in other words, alongside. Won't you send someone along with me? That's the interpretation I prefer, because what Moses is objecting to in this case is the thought of having to do this by himself. I don't want to do this by myself. Would you send me with someone beside me? God grows angry with that response. In fact, before we even look at his response, just note the fact that he gets angry. God's patience is limited. It's long-suffering, but it is limited. And he will show anger at times. And in every case, his response is just and perfect. And therefore, sometimes anger is just and perfect in response to what we say. Why then is God angry at Moses? Well, Moses has cast doubts here on God's preparation to handle Moses' needs. That's the implication. 
Moses wanted company. God already knew that. And notice in verse 14, Aaron, Moses' brother, is already headed toward him at the moment they're speaking. This is like when the servant in Genesis is praying to find a wife for Isaac, and before his prayer is even done, there's Rebekah coming down to the well, right? That's God showing up right on time. Aaron is the eloquent older brother of Moses, apparently. While Moses enjoyed his life in Pharaoh's court and then later in Midian, Aaron lived with the Jews in Goshen. We're never told how Aaron was permitted to leave Egypt and travel here now to Moses. We can only assume he must have escaped by God's hand from the slavery that he was a part of. So Aaron now has been brought to Moses by God just in time to accompany him and support his ministry. God even says, I'm going to give you words. You're going to tell them to Aaron. You're going to be like God to Aaron in that respect. And then Aaron's going to be able to say those words with eloquence and power. Together, you guys are a dynamite team. You'll knock them dead. Trust me. And as a final thought, the church mirrors that experience today. Ministry is a team sport. And the people you see doing it solo are the people, I think, who are, who are suffering in it the most and often are the ones who are least effective because the whole design of God's body is that you can't have just one person do it all. The whole intent is that we would work together. No one is expected or even called to do the work alone in ministry. And therefore, based on what Moses sees happening, I think you can draw a parallel to your own life. If God's put a call in your life, he's going to be with us. He is going to cause people to know that we are called and gifted and follow us as, as God permits. He is going to give us the ability to do what he's called us to do. And he's going to bring us people who we need, when we need them to help us in that work. And that comes in a variety of ways. Physical support, prayer support, financial support, counsel, emotional support, and any number of ways in which we may need that help. Moses had a role. Aaron had a role. They were both working as God gifted him. Now he has no excuse but to answer God's call. There's one thing left in that chapter, one thing that, that Moses still needs to do before he's ready to serve in this call, and we'll deal with that as part of getting into chapter 5. Heavenly Father, I pray a prayer of thanks, Father, that you call us and you give us opportunity to serve. We know, Father, that each of us are part of the body, and if so, Father, each of us have a work of ministry according to your word, and each of us are being trained up for that work. I pray, Father, that you would call us each in a specific and clear way that we would understand and that you would give us courage to respond, that no one, Father, would stay on the sidelines in this last days of urgency, and you would use all of us to the greatest of your, uh, of your glory, Father. I pray that we would have confidence to know you have called and you will equip, and that you would bring those alongside us to encourage us in that call. And in all that we do, Father, we would serve in your power. Thank you for this message, Father. Thank you for the teaching of your word. And Father, I pray that in weeks to come, you would continue to teach us and grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.